Hey everyone, and welcome back to Inside the Morgue. We're your hosts and astonishing autopsy techs, Jess and Alice. This week we will be dissecting Harrow, Season 2, Episode 3, titled Malamince. We will be getting into mummification and bodies found in walls. And before we get into it, we also just wanted to give a quick trigger warning for this episode. This episode of Harrow deals with themes of sexual assault and rape. So if this is something you aren't comfortable listening to, we love you and we understand and we'll see you next week. So we open on a moving slash construction crew cleaning out a house and a man is drilling apart a cement wall in the basement when he reveals what appears to be a mummified woman inside. They bring the mummy in for exam, and a detective tells Harrow and the team that it looks like someone bricked up the asbestos sheeting and bricked up her in there as well. They don't know who the owner of the house is because it's changed hands a few times, and they're putting together a list now. Harrow thinks the body looks like she's been in there for about 10 years at least, and she had a purse with her as well inside the wall, but unfortunately there's no ID in her purse. But they did find what appears to be ecstasy. But because it's been so long since she's died, it is unlikely that they'll find traces of it in her organs. So at autopsy, Alice and I take samples and we send those out and we test for a whole bunch of different drugs when we run like either a UDS or we just like wait for the toxicology to come back. And we always test for opiates, benzos, barbiturates, amphetamines, oxycodone, methadone, and a whole bunch more. But it really depends on the type of sample that you send out. It also depends on how much the body is decomposing at the time that you take the sample. So if this body's been there for 10 years, most likely everything has kind of decomposed with the body. So if you do send samples out for testing and for toxicology, you might only get a qualitative result, meaning that it's only going to say that a drug is in the system, but it can't give you the exact amount. Right. Like sometimes for really decomp cases where we can't get blood or anything because it's just yeah. so quiet. It's just so <laughs> gross. Um, we'll send like muscle tissue or like liver or spleen. Spleen's pretty good. Mm-hmm. But I think they even tell us at the lab that we send them that it's not preferred to send tissue. It's better to have some kind of liquid to be able to test. But Peripheral blood or, or femoral blood is yeah. the best sample that you can send for tox. Yeah, but in times that you can't, sometimes you gotta send tissue. You work with what you got. Sometimes we've sent maggots. We've said that before. And mm-hmm. If you work at the lab that we send samples to, I'm so sorry that we've just sent you... <laughs> maggots to grind up the test i'm so sorry (laughs) i remember thinking that the first time i just scooped up maggots and put them in a jar i was like i feel so bad for the person who has to like grind these up and then test them but anyway the team is suiting up in tyvek suits and tons of ppe so we give a green flag for that you know we love our ppe on inside the morgue we love ppe i love how that's a theme with like people whenever they tell me they've listened they're like god you guys love your ppe yeah i "I didn't even notice (laughs) i didn't even notice we talked about it that much i'm just such a stickler for like safety measures and like bloodborne pathogen training i didn't even realize i think i'm just so surprised by these shows that they actually use ppe because it's a tv show and they can just do whatever they want because they're not actually around any biohazardous materials yeah sometimes in shows they're just like in their normal clothes in the morgue just like leaning over hairs Mm -hmm. like down long hair into the body and it's just like oh mm, (laughs) no don't do that 
And the tech asks if they really need all of this PPE. And they're trying to protect themselves from asbestos because the woman was found inside a wall containing asbestos. And Hera says some people can be exposed to particles for years and not be affected. Others can inhale a few fibers and get lung cancer. So asbestos is a naturally occurring fibrous silicate that can be dangerous when inhaled, so they should be taking all of the precautions they can. They find earrings on the decedent and remove them, also a green flag because we do do this at autopsy. And they look at her clothing and see what appears to be a bit of blood. Harrow asks if the tears in the clothing correspond with the wounds on the victim, another green flag. We always also do this especially for cases involving a gunshot wound we try to see if the clothing is either on or off of them sometimes it comes just in a bag because they went to the hospital so all their clothing is bagged so we always take the clothing out photograph it and look at the bullet hole in the clothing and see if it matches up with the bullet holes that are on the body just for like good measure to see what we're looking for it's definitely helpful like it's good for a through and through also like if you can see something in like the front of the shirt and the back of the shirt say you can see like where something entered and exited like where to look for in the body Mm -hmm. although we do have an x-ray machine that we'll x-ray the body and be able to find it anyway but it's still helpful looking at the clothing But in this case, the tears in the shirt seem to be too rough and irregular, according to Harrow. But wouldn't the size and pattern of the wound on the victim be hard to tell if they were so mummified? I thought so. Question mark. Especially (laughs) with, we just talked about NCIS when he talked about mummification and like drying up. Well, they talked about a smoked case where everything dried up and shrunk up. But similar things happen when the body dries up in like mummification. Everything gets shriveled and... Distorted, just like distorted. I almost said disorganized, but that's not it. Yeah, and sometimes it's hard to tell like what's real and what's really just like the decomposingness. Decomposingness. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Let's invent words. I love it. <laughs> so the tech is taking photos and suggests that they start with the local dentist to get a possible ID. And Hera says it doesn't appear that she had any dental work done, so she might not even be on file anywhere. But this is a good way to ID a Jane or a John Doe. We talked about this before in past episodes. So go listen to one of those if you want to learn more about dental IDs. But there's another pathologist, Grace, and she sees paint in the victim's hair and asks the tech to get a sample of it. Harrow says there doesn't appear to be any defensive wounds and no sign of skin or hands under the nails, which all seem to be intact. They also note that there's no obvious trauma to the genital area and her clothing didn't appear to be interfered with. She has one knee that looks hyper-rotated, and the CT they take shows that the knee is hyper-rotated and that one of her shoulders is dislocated. Harrow says both of these injuries are consistent with being manhandled into a small space, or the wall, and the victim's jaw seems to be intact and no skull fractures, and they note that the hyoid bone is also intact as well, so it doesn't appear that she was strangled. And yeah, we mentioned this probably in past episodes too, Um, but the hyoid bone is a bone in your throat area. It's a little floating bone, and it's responsible for assisting in swallowing and speech, and the hyoid bone is unique because it's the only bone that doesn't articulate with any other bone, and it's suspended only by muscles, specifically the infrahyoid below the hyoid, and the suprahyoid, which is above the hyoid muscles. So this bone is very important forensically because of where it sits, so... If there's like a break or a fracture, it could be indicative of some type of trauma to the neck, for instance, manual strangulation. They also note that her cervical vertebrae, which is the vertebrae in your neck, are intact. 
They say there's no bruising on the neck, so they don't think she was strangled. But now I'm kind of thinking, would you be able to see bruising on a mummified body? I thought that too. I don't know. I, I guess would it be like a darker discolored? I don't know if I've ever seen somebody that's been mummified for 10 years. Yeah, 10 years. That's a long time. But like, would it just be a darker discoloration? I have never seen a mummified body that's been mummified for that long. And I don't know. What was the one you had the other day? How long was she? She was pretty mummified. I think that was a few months. That wasn't, yeah, that wasn't years. I don't know. We Google. Yeah, I think just a few months is like the longest mummified body we've gotten in our office. But if anyone out there is also an autopsy tech, let me know what the longest mummified body you've had, because now I'm really curious. So I just, okay, in this segment of Alice's weird Google searches, <laughs> I Googled bruises on mummies. <laughs> um, the first thing that comes up is a mental floss article called Seven Myths About Mummies. And... Um, the little I didn't even click on the link. The little blurb in Google just says Francis Bacon advocate. Oh, sorry, Robert Boyle and Francis Bacon advocated mummy powder as treatment for bruises and for preventing bleeding. What? That's the first mummy powder. Mummy powder. Are they grinding up mummies? This was, I think, like way back when. I'm gonna have to read this article later, guys. I'm sorry. I'll open it and I'll add it to our show notes so that we can all read this together because <laughs> this is just my weird. Google search as we're doing the podcast. It's like weird medicinal practices that like way back when they used to do. Yes, I think I've heard of this before. We may have even talked about it before. It sounds familiar to me. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, sorry. I just love the <laughs> where my weird <laughs> Google searches take me in the middle of an episode once again. Anyway, Harrow notices that her ribs and sternum are fractured. So they're symmetrical anterior and bilateral fractures, and the fact that they are symmetrical seems consistent with CPR. And this is also a green flag. So these wounds that we see when we have cases like this is when someone has tried to resuscitate the person via CPR. It's very indicative of when, like, somebody has CPR and you know, like, the, probably, like, the your fifth or sixth ribs are always fractured. Sometimes they put a Lucas device, which is literally... It does CPR for the EMT so they can work on something else. And there is like a circular bruising in between, like right on your chest. So we know that like those wounds are CPR and they're not anything suspicious. Right. Like if we see like broken ribs in that area and we know this person was like attempted Mm -hmm. resuscitation before they came to us. It's like, oh, okay. And they have like a lot of medical interventions. Yeah. Too. It's not really anything suspicious. If we see a few fractured ribs, we're just Mm going to chalk it up to CPR. So they think that someone wasn't trying to kill this woman and that someone was actually trying to save her. There were no free red blood cells when her ribs were broken, meaning there was no blood pumping when CPR was performed. So she was already dead before these injuries occurred. Someone tried to revive her, but it was too late. The blue material in her hair is paint, and it looks like she put her hair in wet paint, but that color didn't match anything in the crime scene photos. And when Harold looks more closely, which is he looks under the microscope, they pull out a hair that doesn't appear to be hers. And so hair analysts can tell if an individual's hair is either human or animal, and in the case of human hair... Uh, They can tell where on the body it originated from, and samples can be tested to determine color, shape, and chemical composition of the hair, and often the race of the source individual, too, that they can tell. So the hair could belong to someone who tried to save her, 
or who killed her, or who put her in the wall. They pull up missing persons photos from the mid-90s to the early 2000s to try to find their victim. Grace, the other pathologist, has already found one that is a match. A woman named Libby Hewitt, who appears to be the right match for height, age, ethnicity, and her earrings. She was reported missing in 1997 by her best friend, Melissa Turner. They go to find Melissa and inform her that Libby is dead. And this is possibly a red flag, and I feel like they should... Like, they only have a tentative ID with this missing person photo and this earring, but they need so they, yeah, they need to make a positive ID, like use dental records or fingerprints or DNA or a unique scar or tattoo, and I feel like they should do that before going to see this friend i know it's like in bones when she like she looked at the guy's skull and then it was like this is him as a child like was able to find it that's how i felt jump into conclusions grace is just looking at this photo of this girl from the 90s and was like this is the mommy (laughs) this is her because nobody else can have the same earrings i know i was like how unique are these earrings they're from claire's oh my god (laughs) Yes. Yeah, so it is a very iffy, iffy one. It's felt iffy for sure. <laughs> when they like go to make the notification based off of the earrings. I was like, okay, that can help, but like you can make a presumptive ID. Also, why are pathologists going to go break the news to this friend? Oh, that yeah. should be the job of the police to do death notifications. Two two pathologists and a police officer show up to tell her that her friend is dead. Also, she's the one being notified and she's the one who reported Libby missing because Libby's parents both died when she was 12. So this is, she didn't really have any family. She was just very close to her best friend Melissa. So that's why they're informing her. Also, yeah, is this Melissa next of kin? Like, does she not have any family at all? Like, now I'm getting on a tangent of red flag. This is an iffy one. This is iffy. (laughs) So Melissa is clearly upset and she asks where they found her friend. They tell her she was found bricked up behind a wall in a house, and they ask Melissa if she recognizes the house, and she says she doesn't. She says they were just watching videos the night she went missing. She says the next morning, her door was shut in the dorm, and she thought she was sleeping. Melissa had classes and a job that kept her busy, but then she realized by Monday or Tuesday, I think this was like Saturday night, so she realized about Monday or Tuesday that she hadn't seen Libby since the weekend, and she went to look and found her room empty, and then she reported her missing. Grace doesn't seem to believe that they were just watching movies on a Saturday night on a college campus. Hey, I did that in college. <laughs> I commuted. I never lived at college. I went to the occasional party. So yeah, I did that a lot. I also just hung out <laughs> watched movies with my friends. So she shows Melissa a photo of the clothes that Libby had on, and says it appears that she was going out to a party, but but Melissa insists that the last time she saw Libby, she was wearing pajamas. Harrow really believes that Melissa didn't know that Libby was dead. However, they still feel like she's hiding something from them. The DNA came back for the hair that was found mixed in with Libby's, and it belongs to an unknown male who sexually assaulted two university teens in 1998. Both victims had been attacked on campus, but no one was ever charged. And this all happened a year after Libby went missing, she was reported missing in 1997. They didn't find evidence that Libby was sexually assaulted, but Harrow thinks maybe he had attempted, and when he was unable to, he got frustrated and killed Libby. But Grace doesn't think it makes sense that he would try to revive her after that. Just then, their supervisor comes in saying they found out who owns the house that Libby was found in. They bring the man in for questioning, and he immediately says that he doesn't know who put her in there, and he didn't rape anybody. This man 
was working in maintenance at the university at the time of the sexual assaults and at the time of Libby's disappearance. The detective is having a hard time believing that someone came into this man's house and hit a body in there in a brick wall without him having any idea. Which, like, I also kind of agreed with the detective on this, but then I did... I did a thing that my brother always does when we watch, like, these true... Or the, not true crime, these crime dramas together. If... <laughs> The first suspect you look at, you check the time on the show, and if it's too early in the show, you know they didn't do it because then it's like, oh, they're not gonna. Oh, find, all the time. They're not gonna find the guy within the first ten minutes, and so I did that. Or when they do find it, and it's still like there's thirty minutes left, you're like, this is not the guy. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So that's my brother's little trick that he taught me, and I did that. I was like, mm. see, <laughs> I wanted to agree with the detective. This seems like a good guy, but or not a good guy. A good guy to be the suspect, but I don't think it's it's too early in the show. However. This man refuses to give DNA because he thinks they'll try to frame him with it. Harrow asks the man how often he has performed CPR, and the man is confused, and he's like, oh, is that the chest compression thing? So Harrow isn't convinced that they have their guy, since he thinks that whoever hid Libby's body is the one who performed the CPR. But the detective really thinks they have their guy. The detective goes to get a court order for this man, whose name we learn is Ron, to give a DNA sample, and he tells Harrow and Grace to get back to work getting a cause of death and leave him to do his job basically he's like you guys are pathologists why are you trying to do my job thank you for saying that sir because i was thinking the same thing there's one part though where grace has like a sick burn it's after they go to notify melissa of libby's death the the detective says to grace i want you to leave the police questions to the police or like i only want you to let police to ask police questions she's like oh if they do i will but she's talking about uh, him because <laughs> she's saying i love that part he wasn't asking good enough questions she's like oh yeah i, w- I would if anybody was asking any good questions <laughs> it was funny <laughs> so hera goes to look at the body again and he's also looking at the ct scan he's looking at what looks like the wound on libby's right side like the stab wound but it's kind of hard to tell with all the desiccation and mummification going on And then he goes to the house, wearing all his PPE, where she was found, which is now taped off as a crime scene. He looks in the walls where Libby's body was found and sees a jagged edge of the wall, which may have caused the wound in Libby's side. So it would have been a post-mortem wound. Grace is back in the morgue and asks someone working in the lab what happens if a rape kit was performed on someone, but the victim didn't want to pursue charges. The lab worker says that if the DNA was tested, it might still be on file. Harrow is talking to Ron, the suspect's neighbor, and he asks if he knew that Ron was hiding asbestos in the basement. The neighbor says almost every house in the neighborhood had asbestos, and they'd get quotes to get it removed, but it cost a fortune. Ron didn't want to spend any money on it, so he bricked over it. However, the neighbor also says that Ron didn't brick it up himself because he was too lazy, so he would pay a young university student to brick the wall for him. Grace is still trying to find if Libby had a rape kit done and just didn't report it. Harold comes in to tell Grace about the young university student that worked for Ron. And he also thinks that maybe Melissa, the roommate and best friend, was lying about what Libby and her were doing that night. She went missing because maybe Melissa was the one who was raped. They do end up finding a file that Melissa had withdrawn her complaint, but that she did have a rape kit done. They go to talk to Melissa which I know in the show they are doing a better job than the police here, but pathologists shouldn't be doing the interrogation here. So red flag. And for those who don't know, there is a career out there called a SANE nurse or a sexual assault nurse examiner. 
So what is SANE? A sexual assault examination nurse is an RN who is specifically trained to provide comprehensive care to sexual assault patients to demonstrate competency in conducting a medical forensic exam to include evaluation for evidence collection. They have the expertise to provide effective courtroom testimony and show compassion and sensitivity to the survivors of sexual assault. A forensic examination is for the purpose of evaluating and treatment of trauma, treatment of possible exposure of infection, referral to counseling, and follow-up medical care, and for the collection of evidence following a report of sexual assault by a victim. So the medical well-being of the patient is the primary objective of a SANE nurse at all times during the exam. So if Melissa had had a rape kit done, it was probably by a SANE nurse, or there was a SANE nurse there. If the victim reports the crime, local law enforcement may authorize the exam or the victim may request a sexual assault exam without first reporting to law enforcement as a, quote, non-reported sexual assault. Once consent is obtained from the patient, a head-to-toe examination, including genital area, is done in order for the SANE to document trauma to any part of the body. Last, a collection of forensic evidence is done and a sexual assault evidence collection kit is sometimes used. So the role of a SANE nurse is so important in forensics, clearly. It's a horrific thing to be violated in a sexual assault and then to have to go through another trauma of just having your body be swabbed and for evidence. So SANE nurses are trained to handle this in the most professional way and be there for the victim as well as try to do right by the victim and they are so 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 important and I feel like a lot of people don't know that this career exists yeah so there's actually I know someone she's an autopsy tech and she also is a sane nurse and she she's a nurse and she does like autopsies on the side as per diem but she like within the last few years has like done all the training and everything to be a sane nurse um, at the hospital that she works at so it, it's a career out there if you're interested in it I highly suggest you go like learn more like how can you take the right courses or whatever that you need for it because this role is so important in somebody's worst moment of their life exactly exactly So back in the show, Melissa says she hasn't even told her husband about her assault before, and Grace says that she doesn't have to say anything that she doesn't want to, but whatever happened to Melissa might explain how Libby died. Melissa says they went to a party off campus, trying to fit in and be cool. So they were all drinking, and then the birthday boy of the party handed out tablets at the party. So we see a flashback of Libby pretending to take one of the tablets, which is ecstasy, and then spitting it out, but Melissa takes the tablet. Melissa was dancing with the birthday boy while Libby kept drinking. The boy and Melissa ended up in his bedroom, and she says she liked it at first, but then she asked him to slow down and to stop, but he didn't. When they left the bedroom, she went to the bathroom and overheard the boy bragging to his friends. So Melissa left the party and went home very upset, and Libby didn't see her leave, but Libby was still there dancing and drinking, and Melissa never saw her again. Melissa was so ashamed of what happened to her that she didn't know what happened to Libby, and she thinks it's all her fault. Harrow tells her that it isn't, and that she isn't to blame because something terrible happened to her. And Harrow says that she can stop the man now by having the DNA from her kit tested. So then we cut to a scene to the police pulling up to a courthouse and arresting a judge named James Northcott for sexual assault. They bring him in for interrogation, and he confesses to the sexual assault, so Melissa's and the two others that happened on campus, but denies any involvement with Libby Hewitt's death, and he can prove it. 
Around midnight on the same night as the party, he was admitted to the hospital for an ecstasy overdose. So MDMA, or ecstasy, is an illegal synthetic drug that is classified as an empathogen, so it increases feeling of empathy and compassion towards others, but also acts as a nervous system stimulant. So in high doses, MDMA can cause hallucinations and floating sensations, as well as seizures and vomiting. In some cases, MDMA can contribute to death as a result of a heart attack, stroke, overheating, or if a person drinks too much water. James wasn't discharged until the next day, which is all on record, but he will still do 10 years for the sexual assaults. Harrow is still suspicious, though, and brings a yearbook to Ron's neighbor to show him pictures of James Northcott and asks if that's the student who did the brickwork for Ron. The neighbor says no, but points to another one of the students in the yearbook and says that that was the one who did the brickwork, a boy named Paul Haberecht. Harold goes to question Paul and tells him that James Northcott was arrested for sexual assault. Paul seems like he can't believe it, and we also find out that Paul was the one who drove James to the hospital the night of his ecstasy overdose, since Paul was the only sober one at the party and was the only one able to drive. Harold then asks Paul about who cleaned up after the party was over if James was in the hospital, and also notices that Paul has a lot of nice brickwork done around his house. Paul eventually confesses that the night of the party, everyone was drinking except for him since he had to do brickwork the next day. He saw Melissa leave upset after going to the bedroom with James, and then he says everything went south from there. He took James to the hospital for his overdose, and then when he went back to the house to clean up, he found Libby on the floor with her mouth full of vomit, assuming she must have choked. He tried to give her CPR to revive her, but it didn't work. He wasn't thinking straight, so he didn't call an ambulance. He panicked because people were doing drugs at this party, and he didn't want to lose his scholarship. He dragged Libby's body into his van, which is where he had paint, which is how she got the paint on her hair, and he put her in the wall at Ron's house before bricking it over. He refuses to call the police to make any admission. However, he keeps coughing while he's talking. Harrow asks how long he's had the cough, and he says about a year. Harold says that he must have inhaled some asbestos when he was busting the wall open to hide Libby's body and that he must have asbestosis. So asbestosis is a long-term inflammation or scarring of the lung tissue due to asbestos fibers. Symptoms include shortness of breath, cough, wheezing, and chest tightness, and complications can lead to lung cancer, mesothelioma, which is a cancer in the thin layer of tissue that covers your organs, which is called the mesothelium, hence mesothelioma and pulmonary heart disease. And I was just wondering, is it a big leap to take from one cough? Like, I know Harrow knows that he was working around asbestos, like, 20 years ago they end up finding out. But you hear this man cough once, and you're like, oh my god. You have asbestosis. You must have asbestosis. You can't you have can't allergies. You can't simply be sick or have allergies. <laughs> I mean, it is a year. He's had a cough for a year, so that is a little concerning. Wouldn't he go to the doctor by then? You know, I don't know. I would, or maybe, maybe I wouldn't. I don't know. Maybe he's just, it's just like so. But you're not hiding a body. True. Everybody listening, I am not. To my FBI agent <laughs> who's concerned about my Google searches about mummies and other weird stuff. I am not. I'm not. <laughs> I haven't torn down any, or that I know of, torn, I haven't torn down any walls. What am I saying? I was going to say, I haven't torn down any walls. <laughs> that I know of. <laughs> that I know of. And I'm like, I've never torn down a wall. I don't know why I'm acting like I've done that so much. <laughs> now your FBI agent's suspicious again. <laughs> Shit. So, 
back to the show. Changing subject. Hiro says he should tell the police and see how long he has left to live. It's so dramatic. He's like, you should call the police and also find out how long you have left to live. And it's like He's so nonchalant about it. Thank God. They also were kind of talking like they knew each other. Like I don't know if I got that vibe too, that they were friends at one point. I was wondering if cause he so it's also implied that this guy Paul is a lawyer too, and the James the the rapist was a judge, so I'm assuming maybe they were both pre law. So maybe because of Harrow being a forensic pathologist he's been to court a lot like he might know him mm-hmm. like I don't know if he's a defense attorney or a, a prosecutor I don't know but maybe because he was talking to him he's like come on Paul you gotta call the police like he was and he's like and um he was calling Harrow by his first name he was like Dan I can't do that you know it I have a daughter and I'm like yeah do you guys know each other like <laughs> that makes so much sense if he was a lawyer and they saw each other at court a lot that's what i was assuming but i haven't watched that much of this show so maybe <laughs> me either maybe i'm missing something <laughs> so anyway he ends up calling or paul ends up calling the police i'm assuming we just see the police come up to his house and arrest him and his his poor daughter like dramatically cries out the window it's like oh so sad and that is the end there was actually more subplot that we just cut out because it was just not relevant to the story there was a whole subplot going on with someone who died but didn't really die and the daughter getting involved with drugs and her boyfriend is a chef somewhere we talk about so we've watched the episode after this one before i remember that (laughs) and i was like oh the serial killer guy who's actually alive we find out about him in the next one (laughs) and i thought it was very funny that we've watched that's the one with the burning car at the beginning because this one had a burning car at the end that's actually how it ends is a burning car and the other one starts the burning car so this episode got us thinking about bodies hidden in walls, which led us to the case of Joanne Nichols. In December of 2012, a man named James Nichols passed away in his home in Poughkeepsie, New York, of natural causes at the age of 82. He was estranged from his family, so no one claimed his body or his estate. There was no will to be found. Six months after his death, a clean-out crew came to the house and found a hollow-sounding false wall in the basement. They looked behind the wall and found a barrel-shaped container. Inside the container was a black garbage bag bound with rope. Inside this bag were the skeletal remains of a woman who had been missing for 28 years, James's wife, Joanne Nichols. She was identified by dental records, and according to the county medical examiner, the cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head. Joanne Nichols was a popular first-grade teacher who got along well with her neighbors. When James claimed she either ran off or killed herself when no one had seen her for a while in 1985, everyone had their suspicions. And this gruesome discovery in 2013 confirmed what they had thought. James had killed Joanne. Despite a police investigation, a private investigation, and years of cold case work, James Nichols was never arrested or even publicly named a suspect. He was never even served a search warrant. Joanne was a beloved teacher known for rolling out red carpets on the first day of school and bringing in cupcakes for students' birthdays. That was so sweet. I feel like everybody has that teacher from, like, elementary school that they remembered, like, doing stuff like that. So, so, like, kindergarten or, like, first, like, the younger grades, those teachers are always the best teachers. It, like, made me tear up because my mom's a teacher, or she's a retired teacher now, but she would, like, do this kind of stuff with her students, and I'm like, oh. Mm. 
Joanne didn't drink, smoke, or even wear makeup. Neighbors described her as a lovely woman while describing her husband, James, as kind of cold. Most neighbors didn't want anything to do with him, and Joanne collected books and James collected tools and gadgets. They had two amphicars parked in their yard, which were cars that they could drive on water and land. Oh, like amphibian. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Oh, that's my favorite part of this episode. (laughs) Okay, sorry. I was like, amphicar, and I'm like, amphibian car. Okay. (laughs) I'm so sorry. There's only, it's okay. There's only about 3,800 of them uh, ever produced. And Joanne sometimes complained about her husband's oddities, saying she didn't like his clutter in the house or that she always had to hand over her paychecks to him. And she also hated that he would keep their dead cat in the freezer. <laughs> no. And she dreaded she dreaded opening the freezer when she had to cook. Okay, that's a huge red flag. What? Red flag for him just as a person. I like how it's just like listed. Like, yeah, she didn't like... So casually. The clutter and the paychecks. And the dead cat. Dead cat in the freezer? (laughs) Jesus Christ. This man. In 1982, James and Joanne's 25-year-old son, James III, tragically drowned after falling off the hood of one of their amphicars, and Joanne complained that she was upset that her husband still chose to park the car in their driveway, making it a daily reminder of her grief. What a jerk. Get rid of the car. (laughs) Right? Put it in the garage, at least. Why would you want that still? On December 21st, 1985, James reported his wife missing. He told the police that they had eaten at a local restaurant with another couple the night before and had come home after they had had an argument. The next morning, when he went out to buy dog food and came home, he found her gone. He said he found a typed note on their computer saying she was depressed after their son's death and he claimed to the police that joanne either ran away with a religious cult or killed herself to his neighbors he even said she simply left him he also claimed that she called on christmas eve that year but wouldn't tell him where she was and for days after james reported her missing police searched for joanne in the frozen waters and woods near their house by foot and helicopter They also searched the house a few times, even going down into the cluttered basement where James had showed them his locked safe with extensive gun collections. And the day after James reported his wife missing, police came to the house and found it odd that Joanne's car was still in the driveway. James said he found it abandoned at a local shopping center, so he took it home after having it cleaned. His story was he found his missing wife's car at a shopping center and instead of reporting it he's like well i'll just take it home and take it to the car wash on the way clean the car that's the story he thought people were gonna believe right i mean he did report her missing but he didn't tell anybody that the car was found at that said location he's just oh she's either in a cult or dead is what he was telling people detectives set up surveillance of james and found him seeing another woman when they confronted james with this he said he had a lawyer and refused to answer any more questions joanne's brother john miller hired a private investigator who said he had met three men claimed james nichols had approached asking to kill his wife and stage it as a home invasion but nothing ever came of this investigation Mm, it sounds like something came of it (laughs) it sounds like something to me insane i feel like the time period that this happened maybe police were not as invested in looking for a missing woman 
as people would be now. Yeah, and I also, when I was reading the article before doing the episode today, uh, it said something about how Joanne... It sounded like she she complained about her husband a lot, but she was, like, very old-fashioned. So it was, like, when you got married, you stayed married. And so she didn't want to leave her marriage, and it's it's sad. Mm -hmm. It's all very sad. So seven years after her disappearance, her brother John also appeared in local court, asking that she not yet be declared legally dead, which prevented James from selling the house because it was also still legally in Joanne's name. So James stayed there and rarely spoke to anyone. He was still seen around town occasionally, so when a neighbor hadn't seen him for a week in December of 2012, they called a wellness check and they found him dead. Which brings us back to the start of the story, and the remains of Joanne finally being found in the walls of the basement. John Miller, Joanne's brother, said, Maybe this isn't a Christian thing to say, but I do get satisfaction out of the fact that he died alone and surrounded by nothing but junk. It sounds like he was right where he should have been, miserable and living in filth. There was no reason for him to die alone. He did it all to himself. So we got this information from a New York Times article titled In Cluttered Home, A Dark Secret Three Decades Old by Vivian Years and a CNN article titled Missing Woman's Body Found 28 Years Later Behind False Wall by Lawrence Crook, both of which will be linked in our show notes if you want to learn more. That is... A wild, a wild one. I can't believe the similarities between just hiding the body in a wall between the episode and the the true crime. Right. This just didn't have asbestos. It had like clutter and mm-hmm. hoarder conditions instead. I love that the brother fought to have her not legally declared dead because that's what. Yeah. I I don't know if that's what he intended, but it seems almost like not i don't know how to phrase this correctly i don't want to say poetic but it's like james had to stay in that house then he couldn't sell it and he had to stay with like what he did kind of what he says at the end like he died alone in a cluttered home he did it to himself he did it to himself and it's he was a terrible person awful i mean because when you are legally declared dead like then once like you have like a certified death certificate then like family can sell your house or belongings or like other property that you own but if you're not, then they have no, like, entitlement to sell it. So did she, was she never, I I should have looked more into this. I don't know if she was ever legally declared dead. I don't know how that works. Because I know seven years is typically when they do it, which is why he appeared in court and was like, hey, please don't legally declare her dead. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. Maybe she was never declared legally dead. And it was like a, a missing cold case until she was found. Maybe James was just too lazy to sell the house even after she was legally declared dead. I don't know. True. But it sounds like she wasn't legally declared dead, which good on. I love, I mean, it also breaks my heart, but I love that, like, her brother never stopped, like, fighting for her. Yeah. Hiring a private investigator, even though nothing came out of that investigation, but I feel like they got a lot of information, but they just never did anything with the information. That part of the article was weird when it's like, (laughs) there were three men who said they were approached by James with the offer to stage a break-in and kill his wife. But nothing came from the investigation. I'm like, sounds like you got a good little nugget of information there. Did police just not want to look into it more because they didn't want to allocate resources? I don't know if it was like, yeah, maybe it was like whatever, that's all the private investigation, like the PI could do. Mm -hmm. And like police wouldn't go on from there. Maybe that's what it's saying. 
maybe they didn't have like solid enough evidence to tie these men to James yeah. is what I'm thinking. It was just like word of mouth, which isn't wasn't totally enough to go on sometimes, but Yeah. That is crazy. But yeah, the similarities. At least she was found. Yeah. I hope her ghost was haunting the shit out of him. All those twenty eight years in that house. <laughs> become a poltergeist i think she's him. she seems like she was too good of a person and i think she was also very religious and spiritual so i think she would have moved on and not done that but but she's trying to be petty i would do it i i would haunt i would haunt him for you to end this episode we tallied a total of five green flags and two red flags so in our opinion this episode of harrow does pass in terms of forensic accuracy but let us know what you think or if we missed any red or green flags Thanks for listening to that. I just forgot how to talk for a minute. What was that? I feel like we need a blooper reel. Oh, that's staying in. (laughs) No. And I was like, okay, that's really funny. Keep it in. Alice forgets how to talk. (laughs) thanks for listening to this episode of inside the morgue if you enjoy our podcast and want to learn more about forensics keep on listening you can find us on instagram at inside the morgue pod and dm us with any episode suggestions you may have we'll be back next week for a brand new dissection bye